Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 33. Psalm 33 will be our text this morning. Um, As many of you know, sometimes as we read through the Psalms, we get a superscript, or sometimes the context of the Psalm itself give us some idea of the time frame or what was going on in the history of Israel as that psalm was penned, we don't get any of that in Psalm 33. We have no superscription, no subscription, and it's very general hymn that we would praise the Lord. And so it aptly fits to the church and God's people at any time in our history. So let's read Psalm 33 and ask God's blessing on our time. I do now invite you to hear, not only hear, but receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. This is his word. He is the only true God. May you hear it and submit to it. The word of God reads, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let us pray. Lord, we quiet our minds and our hearts before you this morning. And we acknowledge that you and you alone are worthy of our praise. Lord, we confess that we don't praise you 
as you deserve. We confess that we are often self-centered, self-seeking, seeking to exalt ourselves rather than you. So Lord, it's our prayer this morning that by your spirit through the preaching of the word you would encourage our hearts, that you would remind us afresh that you are worthy of praise at all times, in all circumstances, in all seasons, forever and ever and ever. Lord, we want to be a people who worship you in spirit and truth, who praise you in both the good and the bad times. So teach us this morning, Lord. Help us this morning. That we may walk out of this place today as a people trusting in you and therefore praising you in all of our ways. Help us to this end for your glory, for our good, and for the benefit of those around us. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is worship? What is, what is praise? Well, we talk a lot about worship, we talk a lot about praise, but, but what is it? For our purposes this morning, I will use these two words synonymously. That is, worship is praise and praise is worship. And a simple Christian definition of worship or praise might be as follows. Worship or praise is rightly regarding the triune God and responding appropriately. Worship or praise, Christian worship or Christian praise, that is, is rightly regarding the triune God as he's revealed in Scripture and responding appropriately. And when the born-again believer thinks rightly about the Lord, according to his word, then praise begins, and it manifests itself in various ways. It can be the singing of songs. It can be the playing of instruments. It can be the giving of thanks. It can be the offering of prayers. It can be the speaking affirmations of the works of the Lord and the word of the Lord, etc., etc., etc. Christian worship, worship or Christian praise <clears throat> is a lifestyle that consumes the entirety of the Christian person such that his mind and his body and his spirit is oriented toward the glory of God that is due to God alone. We say it often, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. That is Christian worship. But we have a problem. If we think rightly about God and it follows that, therefore, we rightly worship God, the problem is, is that we don't always think rightly about God. We don't always think rightly about what he says in his word. And when we are not thinking rightly about the Lord, then what happens? We don't feel like offering him the praise that is due his name, of which he is always deserving. And so I'm willing to to go out on a limb here. My, my guess is that some of you woke up this morning and, and you got in the car because you're a Christian and, and you go to church or maybe someone invited you and you're not a Christian 
but you didn't feel like worshiping God. That, that you drive here and the first thing on your mind isn't, man, I really want to worship God. You may be physically here. You may have even sung the songs. But some of you, I would imagine, have not offered authentic worship to God this morning. Perhaps this is because you don't know God. Perhaps this is because you know God, and although you know God, you're not thinking rightly about God. Perhaps this is because although you know God, you aren't thinking about God at all, because you had a terrible week. Or you're consumed and overwhelmed with thoughts of self. Or maybe you're busy, and your schedule is packed, and so you haven't quite learned the skill of being still and knowing that he is God. However, I'm also willing to bet that others of you were eager to gather for worship this morning. That you woke up this morning, and yes, Sunday, to the perplexion of the world, is your favorite day of the week. That you drive here. And you get here, and you serve, and you worship the Lord, and maybe you raise your hands, and maybe you're thinking about the goodness of the Lord. Now, he's been faithful each and every day, and you want to gather with God's people, and you want to explode and worship. You know God. You are thinking rightly about God, and you have exalted him in your heart, such that when you walk through those doors, you're already worshiping the Lord, and you're ready to manifest that inward worship outwardly through song and praise. Why in the world would I start a sermon by trying to divide, if you will, these precious people before me? Why would I start a sermon addressing worshipers and non-worshipers, if you will? It's because Kenny loves division. Kenny loves quarrels. No, that's not at all why. It is because, listen to me now, each and every one of us is inclined to go back and forth between worship and non-worship. Next week, those of you who came worshiping the Lord might be in the exact opposite position. And those of you who are maybe downcast, not thinking rightly about the Lord, may next week be ready to worship. We go back and forth between worship and non-worship. May the Lord help us because he's always deserving of worship. I need to be clear about something before I continue to Psalm 33. Pastor Jeff says it, and I affirm it. We love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth of the matter is this, is that no one can worship God apart from faith, trust, belief, and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some in my hearing that need to know that, that need to understand that. Jesus said what? I am the way and the truth and the life, except through me. No one comes to the Father. No one can know God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know God, if you want to worship God, if you
you want to acknowledge the triune God of the Bible, you must acknowledge the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our worship is centered around him. Scripture says that he and he alone is the mediator between God and man. He and he alone is the mediator between God and man. You and I, we have a problem. We have rebelled. So there's a chasm that separates us from God, but Jesus Christ is that bridge that we might rightly relate to God. Mankind rebelled and rebels against God. How do we do this? By forsaking his words and forsaking his ways, such that our relationship, our fellowship with God has been seemingly irreparably broken. But God, but God came into his own creation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ through the womb of a virgin. This coming of Christ was for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. Jesus Christ lived perfectly that we might be forgiven of our imperfect lives. He died in the place of his people such that we might no longer be separated from God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul proclaims in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus Christ rose victoriously over sin and Satan and death that we might be free from the evil of this world. He ascended into heaven that we might know that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. The fact that Christ is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, assures me that his sacrifice for my sins is more than enough. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead that we might wait expectantly and with unwavering hope. One cannot worship God unless he believes these things about the God-man, Jesus Christ. However, many of you, if not most of you, have, by the grace of God, to the glory of God, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. And so, we must be honest with ourselves. Even those of us who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ are still prone to shift back and forth between worship and non-worship. So we need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that our primary position in this world is to be perpetually in a place of praise. The question is, do you believe that? That your regular responsibility in this life, as we now know it, is to rightly regard God and to relentlessly respond appropriately. Do you believe that? Because if and when we believe that, oh, that's a game changer. The way that I relate to my wife, the way that I relate to my children, the way that I relate to my work environment, the way even that I relate to the world, if I'm thinking that my primary responsibility is to worship the Lord in that setting, oh, that's a game changer. So, beloved, I trust that Psalm 33 will offer a reminder and an encouragement to us this morning. The main idea of this sermon 
with Psalm 33 is that it provides three revelations of worship to God, to God as creator and king and judge and savior, so that you might offer reverent and authentic praise unto him on a more regular basis. And you see those three revelations in your outline. If you don't have an outline in front of you, they are this. Revelation number one, requirements to praise the Lord. Revelation number two, reasons to praise the Lord. And Revelation number three, responses to the praiseworthy Lord. Let us begin with requirements to praise the Lord in verses one through three. And when I say requirements to praise the Lord, I mean that you are required to praise the Lord. In other words, you are commanded to praise the Lord. Verses 1 through 3 gives us commands or requirements to do such. We look and see verse 1. It says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. The term translated shout means to proclaim, proclaim jubilantly or to exult or to sing aloud. And this shouting for joy, don't miss this, is in the Lord. It's not just a shouting for joy. No, it's a shouting for joy in the Lord. As a matter of fact, some translations say it this way, shout for joy because of the Lord. I like that. Or simply rejoice in the Lord. The point being that the command to shout for joy is a God-centered command. Yes, the righteous, those in Covenant relationship with the Lord are the ones who are to do the shouting. Yes and amen. But such shouting is not centered on the subject who shouts. Rather, such shouting is centered on the object of their shouting that is the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord. And I just want to encourage us. Every once in a while, one of the brothers leading us in song will encourage us before they start their set. And they'll say, let us lift our voices to the Lord. Let us sing aloud to the Lord. So the next time Dennis or the next time Isaac or the next time Noah encourages us to, to lift our voices, I want you to tie it to this text right here. Psalm 33, verse 1. We are commanded to not whisper for joy in the Lord, but to shout for joy in the Lord. And then we get this little nugget of, of gold, I like to call it. Maybe my favorite phrase in the whole psalm, praise befits the upright. Praise befits the upright. L let me talk to you about what praise means. The term translated praise speaks of an extemporaneous and a spontaneous worship. The idea is that unexpected praise is struck up by one who is walking with the Lord. Every once in a while, you just need to open your mouth and praise the Lord. In your homes, in your workplaces, and among the congregation, when's the last time that you were thinking about the Lord that you just had to sing a song of praise, that you just had to shout to the Lord? That's what this is saying, that it's extemporaneous, that it's not planned. It's just the Lord is so good, and as I walk with the Lord, and as I see the Lord, I, I have to open my mouth and declare his praise. Such praise 
befits the people of God. The term befits means that it's, it's suitable, it's appropriate, it's proper, it's seemly for the people of God to worship God. Even it is reasonable and lovely, it is a reasonable and lovely duty even for God's people to praise him. As a song is fitting for a canary, as a wave is fitting for the ocean, as the stars are fitting for the sky, so is praise fitting for the upright, those who walk with God. I just want to tell you, you never look more beautiful than when you're praising the Lord. Because this is the proper function of faithful people. I love what Augustine of Hippo said. He said, the pray, uh, These praise the Lord who submit themselves unto the Lord, for else they are distorted and perverse. In other words, redeemed people have a distortion in their mind such that it reflects itself in how they behave if they're not praising. In this pulpit, after I preach, you guys see me do a few things. I praise, or I pray, I step back here, I pray some more, and then I open my eyes. And I, and I scan God's beautiful, precious people. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, if I catch your eyes, what's he thinking? Well, why is he looking at me? I'll tell you. It's a beautiful thing to see God's people lift their voices to worship the Lord. And so I am scanning to see who is and who is not. What, what may be on the hearts of the people who are downcast. Who maybe I should follow up with as a shepherd of the sheep. And sometimes I'm just overcome with people receiving the word of God and appropriately responding by lifting their voices afterward. You have never looked more beautiful, brothers and sisters, than when you praise the Lord. Praise befits the upright. We are to shout, but we are also to give thanks. This brings us to verse 2. It says, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Imagine that. You want a verse that says we're allowed to use instruments in church? There it is right there. That that an instrument can be an authentic worship and giving thanks of God insofar as the one strumming or playing or hitting whatever you're doing is rightly thinking about the Lord and responding with their instrument. I thank the Lord for the music ministry team at Redeemed South Bay. And I'm not talking about preferences that you may have. I wish they played this song. I wish they played this, this, and the other. Just humble yourself and give thanks to God for those who week after week come up here and they rehearse week after week and they use their instruments that we might lift our voices and praise the Lord. I encourage those instruments, instrumentalists to be doing it to the glory of God. As you stand before us and you lead us in song, that you would think rightly about the Lord and that you would say every strum, every hit, every pluck, every whatever, it's for your glory, Lord. And it's a genuine offering of thanks to you. 
We can worship the Lord with external instruments, but we can also worship the Lord and are commanded to worship the Lord with internal instruments as well. Look at verse 3. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So now we have a command to praise with voices and with instruments. And so, yes, the music ministry team leads us in praise, but we are all to lift up our voices in praise. Here at Redeemed South Bay, we believe in congregational singing. So every once in a while, I don't know what kind of churches you've visited before. I've visited a whole bunch of kind of churches. Every once in a while, you go to a church, and there's someone who's really, really talented, and they stand before the people of God, and it's like a solo concert for like four or five songs, and you're like, oh, that was beautiful. That was lovely. But no one's really worshiping together. It's more of a watch party, if you will. It's entertaining. Brothers and sisters, we believe that the voices of God's people should be lifted to him. And we should all congregationally and collectively lift our voices unto the Lord. And so we're all vocalists in God's praise team, if you will. So lift up your voice. Note that these, or this verse suggests that we are to offer new songs with loud shouts. One commentator said this, he said, Our praise is to be with freshness and with fervor. Our praise is to be with freshness and with fervor. In other words, don't ho-hum ho your way through the songs. Be thinking about the Lord and open up your mouth and offer a, a fresh and a fervent praise. Another commentator said this, a new song, as the text says, is appropriate because the Lord is constantly intervening in the lives of his people in fresh and exciting ways. In other words, when we see the Lord work out his purposes in our lives, we respond to him with a new song. And also note that the instrumentalists are to play skillfully. Fresh, skillful, and lively praise is what this psalm prescribes. And so we can say whatever it is that we want to say about our, our personal preferences for styles of worship. We can say whatever it is that we want to say about how many or how little traditional hymns should be employed by a local church. We can say what we want to say about the volume level of the music in the church, whether it should be louder or softer. We can say a whole bunch of stuff. But can we at least say this? That according to this psalm, that there is and must be a place for new songs played with beauty and skill, which is strengthened by the loud voices of the saints. The church is the place that that takes place, that happens here and now. I think, ideally, we'd have a little bit of the old and the new, that we would look before us and give thanks to God for what he's done, but that we'd also offer fresh new songs of praise unto the Lord. Beloved, you are required to praise the Lord. You are commanded to praise the Lord. It is proper for the saints of God to shout and to give thanks and to sing to the Lord, but why? But why? One of the things, and take this little, little sidestep right here. This is some parenting advice. One of the things I love about the Lord is, yes, he commands, and yes, he requires, but he's so gracious to explain sometimes. 
He tells us not only what to do, but oftentimes he tells us what to do. And so, parent, if your constant refrain is because I said so, maybe you can use that sometimes, but if your constant refrain is because I said so, I would just encourage you to explain why, to teach your kids and instruct them and point them towards the word of the Lord as you instruct them why. Say, because in our household, we worship the Lord. And the Lord says this, and the Lord says that, and the Lord is faithful to do this, that, and the other. I better get back to my sermon, but there's a little tidbit for you guys. All right, why? Why are we to praise the Lord? Why? <clears throat> if verses 1 through 3 require, require us to praise the Lord, then verses 4 through 19 provide a myriad of reasons to do so. This is Revelation number 2 of worship, reasons to praise the Lord. We'll look at it in verses 4 through 19, but I'm going to break that down into three subsections. We are to worship the Lord because of the word of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and the watchful eye of the Lord. Look with me first at the word of the Lord in verses 4 through 9. It says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. All the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. We are to praise the Lord first because of the word of the Lord. In these verses, the Lord is set forth as the supreme creator. Verse 4, that first word is a very important word. For. For. When you're reading your Bibles at home and you're studying the Word of God, anytime you see therefore or so that or the word for, make sure you understand the content that precedes that word. Here's the, the, the hinge of the psalm. You are to praise the Lord for represents a cause. It functions as the causal point in which or why you are to praise the Lord. And so we're commanded, but now for, for the word of the Lord is upright. One reason that we should worship or praise the Lord is because his word is upright. That is, his word is just, it is straight, it is right. And furthermore, all his works are done with faithfulness or with trustworthiness. It's important for us to understand that the word of the Lord and the work of the Lord are inseparable. He speaks and he acts in an utterly righteous and trustworthy manner. So when the, word, when the Lord speaks, he is also active and at work. I love what Psalm 112 says. It says, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. And so here in verses 4 through 9, we, we see the God of the universe, that the Lord is the creator of all, but it is in verse 5 that indicates that he is more than a creator. It's emphasizing that he's the creator, but we get insight into the fact that he's more than a creator. Verse 5 says what? He loves righteousness and justice, and that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, the Lord loves his own character. The Lord loves his self. And we might think, them, think to ourselves, if we're thinking 
what I call theology from below. We think about ourselves and then we apply that to God. Well, that's selfish. But if we understand who God is, if we understand what God does, then we understand that it is right and good and for our benefit that the Lord is primarily concerned about his own glory. He loves righteousness and justice because he himself is righteous and just. And the verse tells us that character of the Lord is displayed in all the earth. That the steadfast love of the Lord is on display. That the earth is full of it. That steadfast love is a really important term for you to understand. It's a popular Hebrew term. Hesed, you may be familiar with that word, and it's translated a lot of different ways. Sometimes you'll see it translated as the unfailing love of the Lord. Sometimes you'll see it translated as the loving kindness of the Lord. Sometimes it's just simply faithfulness, or sometimes it's the goodness of the Lord. It's important for us to understand this word because many times in the Old Testament, as in our text this morning, the term connotes or has the idea or the notion of the Lord's covenant loyalty. The Lord's covenant loyalty. This means that the Lord is faithful to complete the covenants he has made with his people. The Lord is loyal to his promises that he has given to his people. And the earth is the realm in which God displays that covenant loyalty. And so when we think of the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, we're not thinking this is a great emotional feeling type of love thing. No, we're saying God works in history in such a way that we can see his covenant faithfulness, his covenant loyalty through his people or to his people throughout history. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's some of the best good news I could ever hear. I don't know about you, Whatever your intentions might be, sometimes you speak a word, you make a promise, you make an agreement with someone. And has anyone ever been like me? In the moment, you meant it with the entirety of your person. But circumstances come and things come up and you realize, I don't have the ability to meet what I promised to do. And so the upright person confesses that, hey, I'm, I can't do that. I'm sorry this came up or that came up or this, that, and the other. You can mean with sincerity of heart a lot of things that you say. But at some point or another, you're going to realize, I fail. I fall short. It doesn't come to fruition always. It's not so with God. It's not so with God. He speaks, and it comes to fruition. Maybe not as quickly as you would like it to come to fruition, but he has a perfect track record such that it gives me assurance and hope that everything that God has revealed to us in his word, all the promises that God has made to his people, will come to pass. And so I rejoice. I rejoice. The promises of God to his people are not upheld because his people deserve it. The promises of God are upheld to his people because he loves righteousness and justice. And you know what? For God to keep his promises to his people, that's righteous and just. So I just want to encourage you, Christian, keep your nose in God's word. Scour the Bible and find the promises of God to you, his people. Trust and believe that God does and will uphold each and every one of those promises. 
Remind yourself of the various ways that God has been faithful to keep his promises. And praise him that he will certainly keep those promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And the next verses remind us of the power that God has. And why is that important in the context of this steadfast love, this covenant loyalty? God's power is important because it serves as an encouragement and verification that God can and will certainly make come to fruition all that he has promised. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the seas as a heap. He puts the deep in the storehouses. And by these verses, we are reminded that God creates ex nihilo, or out of nothing. And that in the creation account of Genesis and in the Exodus itself, God causes water to move wherever he pleases. This is our God who can intervene at any given moment to provide for his people. He's done so throughout the history of his people. And interestingly, verse 6 may also cause the observant reader to consider the triune God. John 1 tells us what? That the word was God and that all things were made through the word. Later on, it tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we understand that the word of the Lord, if you will, the living word of the Lord is Christ himself. Furthermore, Colossians 1 reminds us that Christ, who is the word, is the one through whom all things were created. And so when we read, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, we have good theological ground to consider that word as a personal word. The second person of the triune God is the word by whom all things were created. Furthermore, when we read by the breath of his mouth later on in verse 6, we should note that the word translated breath is also the Hebrew word for spirit. And we remember from Genesis 1 that the spirit of God was present and active in creation. And so we have good theological reason as we consider Psalm 33, verse 6, and consider the rest of the Bible. We have good theological reason to see this verse as alluding to the singular work of creation accomplished by the triune God. And so how should we respond? Well, verse 8 tells us that all the earth fear the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Verse 1 tells us that praise befits the upright, that those in right standing with the Lord should praise him, but that is not good enough, and that is made clear in verse 8. That all the inhabitants of the earth should fear God, should love God, should revere God, should praise God. And so if you have not feared God, if you have not revered God, if you have not loved God, if you have not praised God, then you are a fool in the truest sense of the word. Psalm 14, I believe, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. If you are not presently fearing God, presently loving God, presently praising God, then it is a waste of your time. And if that is characteristic, it is a waste of your life. Don't waste your life. Again, Augustine said of this verse, Let every sinner fear that so he may cease to sin. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, not of the terrors of men, nor of any creature, 
but of him alone let us stand in all. And the next verse serves as an exclamation point as to why he should be praised. Verse 9 says, For he, he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. In other words, the Lord made it all and all are made to worship the Lord. Next time that you're reading Genesis 1, I want you to slow down. And I want you to stand in awe of the majestic simplicity of that text. We, we know the story well. We read the creation account. Yep, got that. Known that since, you know, Sunday school when I was a kid. Let us slow down and stand in awe of God. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, insert whatever verse you want, and it was so. God said, and it was. Beloved, in Genesis 1, we repeatedly see an expression of the divine will and the immediate realization of that will. That is the God who displays his covenant loyalty in all the earth. And so when we think of our God as the God who speaks things into existence, does he not have power to uphold that which he promised to us? And when we think and meditate upon these things, our, our heart begins to soar. Our eyes are focused upward rather than inward, and we say, Lord, I worship you. Because when we rightly regard the Lord, that's our only option, is to respond in praise. One reason to praise the Lord is the word of the Lord, but look here at the will of the Lord. In verses 10 through 12, it says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to Psalm. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plan of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Starting in verse 12, obviously in context, this is speaking of the nation of Israel. That, that the nation of Israel is the one that God chose not for their sake, but for the glory of his name. But we can fast forward, and we can look to the book of Revelation, and we can see in Revelation 21, over and over again, we have this picture of the nations. That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language will worship the Lord. A day is coming when every nation will be God's nation. Oh, how we long for that day, amen? And whole, how we're reminded that nations rise and nations fall. May God be gracious to this nation. May we be faithful regardless of what happens to this nation or any nation. In these verses, verses 10 through 10, we see the sovereign will of the Lord as king and judge over all the earth. And so we're told to praise the Lord because... His will endures over and against the will of all others. One commentator said this, His purposes are sustained no matter what people endeavor to do. Surely a God with such powerful words and works should be praised. Can I get an amen to that? 
He should be praised. No one and nothing ultimately prevails against the Lord. Rather, the Lord prevails in all things. And thus his people rejoice. And thus his people rejoice. Perhaps Psalm 2 is the best commentary on this verse for us. Let's turn there quickly. We know from the book of Acts that Psalm 2 was penned by David. David was a king. He was God's king of God's nation. And he wrote, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And he goes on to talk about how these nations conspire, that, that they set up plans and they s- set up schemes to rise against God's nation. But you know what the Lord does? He sits in the heavens and he laughs. It's laughable, saints, to think that any power upon this earth can prevail against the Lord. So he sits and he laughs, and later on in the psalm, he says, verse 8, Ask of me, speaking to his son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord's going to do that. Yeah, yeah, he's gracious and humble and lowly, but he's coming again in wrath and fury. And this is what's going to happen. And so what should the nations and the kings and all people do? It says in verse 10 of Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge. In him. In other words, there's an extended version of the fact that the Lord looks at the counsels and the schemes of the nations, and his will prevails. Beloved, we should worship the Lord because of his word and because of his will. But we should also worship the Lord because of the watchful eye of the Lord. Look with me at verses 13 through 19. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. For where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. These verses depict the Lord as both judge and savior. Verses 13 through 15 remind us that God is transcendent, that he is high and lifted up, that no eye can see him. Yet at the very same time, however, transcendent he is, that he is not disinterested with his creatures. He can see all. Notice that repetition. All the children of man, all the inhabitants of the Lord. He fashions the heart of them all. And so, on one hand, 
it is a terrifying reality that the Lord sees all. For all who do not fear the Lord, this is nothing but bad news. But on the other hand, it is an overwhelming comfort that the Lord sees all. For all the saints of God who experience trials and hardships, persecution and afflictions, injustice and suppression, this reality anchors the soul. The Lord, the Lord sees me. The Lord sees you. And we're reminded that we're not saved by what we can see now, but rather we are saved by the invisible one who sees us. Verses 16 and 17 serve as a reminder not to trust in what you can see. The trustworthiness of human schemes and plans are on display here. The king might trust in his army. He might trust in his horses. But you shouldn't trust in those things. Just as a king may put his hope in his army, if we're honest with ourselves, we are tempted to put hope in perceived measures of security. Certainly there are some great things upon this earth, great in strength, great in might. It says it in the text itself, a great army, a great strength, a great might. But there's nothing on this earth, nothing on this earth, nor the sum of all things in this earth, greater than the Lord who created them all. So ask yourself, what is it that you might be putting false hope in? What is it that you might be putting false trust in? And rid yourself of it now. Rid yourself of it now, for the Lord does not save the self-confident, nor those who are confident in the transient things of this world. You ask then, well, who, who does he save? glad you asked because verses 18 and 19 give us the answer. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Yes, the Lord sees all, but he has a particular eye on those who fear him. Do you fear the Lord? Think soberly and ask the Lord to help you. Do you fear the Lord? Do you hope in the steadfast love of the Lord? If so, then the result is that he would deliver your soul from death and keep you alive in scarcity. Somebody say amen. That's good news, brothers and sisters. That's news that we can wake up in the morning and say, I don't really care what happens to me today because I'm going to march forward trusting the Lord. This has both present and future implications. There are times and places where we see in the scriptures that God intervenes in the here and now to physically save his people. We see that in the history of Israel as we read through the book of Acts. We see it there as we listen to Paul's testimony in his epistles. We see that God intervenes and protects his people in such a way that sometimes he saves them physically in the midst of hardship and affliction upon this earth. But if he does not, He's still faithful to his promise. Because the Lord ultimately will save all those 
you are his. Makes me think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You got to bow down. You got to worship the idol, right? Well, they get called in. If you don't, you don't bow down, this is going to get bad. We're going to turn that furnace up seven times hotter, and you're going to go in there. And their response is we refuse. We refuse to bow our knee to the idol. For they know that their God can save them. But they say, even if he doesn't, we still refuse. Well, their story is that what I believe to be the pre-incarnate Christ was in there with them. Three men were thrown in, but they saw four men in there, and they were physically saved. But that's not the outcome, always, saints. That's not the outcome, always. I was just talking to my mom this week. For those of you who have maybe heard me talk about that, she's been in crazy health situations for two years now. And I'll, I'll uh, save you from going through that list. But the latest news is this. A while back they thought she didn't have cancer, and now they think she does have cancer. And so I called. She sent us a text. I called. I said, hey, Mom, how are you handling the news? And she said, it's scary. It's overwhelming. All I can do is take it one day at a time. I said, that's right. That's right. As I'm listening to my mom, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what if the Lord does take her? Where's my hope? My hope in my prayer is that the Lord would heal my mom and that she would have years of life worshiping the Lord and growing in his grace and knowledge. That's my prayer. But that's not his promise. It's not his promise. His promise is to ultimately save all of his people such that I know that prayer will ultimately be answered if not in this life in the next mom if you're listening I love you God bless you we're all praying for you may the Lord do his will saints and I'm going to trust him every step of the way and I'm going to trust that he has a purpose in the midst of your suffering and in my mom's suffering and in my suffering that he is at work in us in such a way that his ultimate goal is being realized. You hear me say it all the time. We constantly need to be re reminded of it. God's ultimate goal for your life is that you might be conformed into the image of his son. That's his ultimate goal. And he oftentimes does that through suffering. Beloved, we understand that the Lord saves temporarily, temporarily at times, but everlastingly always those who fear him, for his watchful eye is upon his people. And so we're required or commanded to praise the Lord, and we should do so because of the word of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and the watchful eye of the Lord. This brings us to Revelation number three, responses to the praiseworthy Lord. If the preceding verses, verses 1 through 19, are true, then we are to do what? We are to 
respond appropriately to this praiseworthy Lord. First is this trust in the Lord. Look at verses 20 through 21. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Notice that this psalm closes rather quietly. It opens with shouting and singing aloud and great exuberance. But it closes quietly, which reminds us that the entirety of the psalm suggests that there's a time for loud worship and there's a time for quiet worship. As a matter of fact, oftentimes as we shout for joy in the Lord, we are moved to still ourselves before his greatness. I see that happen sometimes in the context of this church. You sing a song or two and then the Spirit of God convicts you or you're overwhelmed by the greatness of God and you just need to sit and consider the Lord at times. Yes, we shout, but we also wait for all his great promises to come to pass. Our inward being waits for him. He is our help and our shield. Somebody say amen if you need help. Oh, come on. I need a bigger amen than that because I need a lot of help. You, I need help each and every day. I need help, and I need to be reminded that he is my help and that he is my shield. And so as we wait, acknowledging that he is our protector, our heart does what? It finds gladness and joy in him. As Augustine said, you guys can tell I read some Augustine this week, huh? As Augustine said, this joy is found not in ourselves. We're in, without him, there is great need. But in himself shall our heart rejoice. Ultimately rejoice because we trust in his holy name, is what the text says. The idea of the name in the Old Testament especially signifies God's revealed character. He has revealed himself. He has given a name to his people most clearly in Exodus 3, and he has revealed himself by his name such that when we think about the name of the Lord, we're thinking about his nature and his character and his being. And so as we come to know God, as we are informed believers, we trust in his revealed character more and more. And lastly, the second proper response is is pray to the Lord. Look at verse 22. It says, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Beloved, pray to experience the steadfast love of the Lord. And I don't mean that in any mystical way. I don't mean that in any weird way. I mean that God has revealed himself. And as we enter into relationship with him, and as we study the word of God and are led by the spirit of God, there is an experiential aspect of our walk with the Lord such that we are confident in the Lord. We can know a lot of things about God, but knowing and trusting God, truly knowing and truly trusting God is a reality wrought by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, to the glory of God. And so we pray, Lord, let us experience your steadfast love. Let us sense it. Let us walk in it confidently. For when we know and trust God, we expect and we hope in the promises of God in such a way that we pray in faith that his steadfast love would be upon us day by day as we seek to praise him all of our days. Beloved, you are required to praise God. You have reasons to praise God. You should respond rightly in light of this praiseworthy God each and every day, ever increasingly, 
for his glory, for your good, and for the benefit of those around you. And when we fail, we make a beeline to the cross of Christ. We confess it. We repent of it. We get in step with the Spirit. In a moment, you're going to have a wonderful opportunity to shout to the Lord. I encourage you to do so. Father, bless these precious people. Help us to joyfully submit to the command to praise you. Help us be mindful of the reasons that you are always worthy of praise. Lord, help us respond to you, the praiseworthy Lord, with great trust and in prayer, which signifies that we depend on you and not on ourselves. Help us to do these things this week, we ask in Jesus' name.